Do you guys not think that's true? Depends on price. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we can bargain. That's That would be part of the lesson here, um, is how to bargain. Yeah, no, no, no. It's... it's um, Something reasonable, some some small percentage of um, your tuition for the class. That's fair. Can you take IOUs? Uh, <laughs> ah, so now this is really interesting because now what we're doing is talking about um, different kinds of money. Like an IOU can function as money, right? That is, if people are taking IOUs as like checks. We talked on... Monday about how many times a bill circulates before it goes back to the bank. And I guess we never quite finished that. What generally happens, what was discovered, is that people take a $10 bill and they go to the store and they buy something. And at the end of the day, the um, shopkeeper brings the money to the bank because they don't want to be keeping a lot of cash on, pre on premises. So in fact, you go to the ATM, you take some money, you go to the store, um, you buy something, the, at the end of the day, that money's deposited back in the bank. And that's one reason. When I was a kid, there were lots and lots of really cruddy-looking $1 bills. Um, now you may notice that almost all the cash that you deal with is pretty crisp. And if you don't notice that it's pretty crisp, it's because you don't know what the alternatives were. Um, and the alternatives were that there were $1 bills that... Um, were practically paste, or they would they would leave little bits of gunk on your fingers because they'd been circulated so often. It was only $1 bills that that happened to because uh, $1 bills were often not redeposited. They would be the, um, the money that a shopkeeper would keep in a cash register and not worry about making sure that got to the bank also. But the fives and tens and twenties all got to the bank. And so that's why um, it tends to be that there were only one or two exchanges of any bill greater than a $1 bill. Now even the $1 bills are crisp. And I think that's because people are getting, monies out of AT getting money out of ATMs and because cash counting machines are much faster now. And so it's okay for um, people in stores to get them in. But just notice, do you guys have money in your wallets or are you just all, um, you like all right pay now, using your phones? Right. Like right now. Okay, hand it in. <laughs> no. Um, why don't you look at the money in your wallet and see, do the experiment of seeing which ones are, oh, look. So this $5 bill is kind of gunky. Here's a crisp $1 bill. Um, yeah, the 20 is like the least um, messed up. The fives are okay. And it's definitely the case that, yeah, this one is the, is, is the most beat up of the ones. You could also look at the dates, right? So um, this is uh, 2013. This more gunky one is 2013 also. Oh, these are all 2013. I mean, they're all comparable, but 20 is 2004. 20 is what? This, these two are 2013 and this one's 2004. 2004? Yeah. So that means it's like spent most of its life in the bank if you still have a 2004 bill. Yeah. Plus, it's pretty crisp. It's still good. Okay. It's from 2004. Yeah, well. Wow, this is like, I was six years old. Huh. Imagine. Okay. At any rate, once you have checks, and what paper money originally was was a check, 
issued by a bank saying you can cash this check for silver or for gold. But once people started writing checks, you guys don't live in a check economy, but even if you think about Venmo, so how many of you pay extra to get instantaneous transfer on Venmo? <laughs> I know you don't. <laughs> it's such a jib, right? Um, none of you do? So, do you pay extra to get the money instantaneously on Venmo? Sometimes. Okay. I, mean, I used to do it when, so before, like three months ago, it was like a 25 cent charge, like flat right. rate. Uh -huh. But now it's a percentage. So what I used to do is if I had $80 in Venmo, uh -huh. I would spend the like 25 cents because it's not a big deal. Right. And then just transfer it. But now it's a percentage. So now yeah. Don't. Yeah. And so you're willing to wait up to three days yeah. for the money. Um, to avoid, so yeah, so $100 now or $105 a week from now? What? <laughs> $100 now or $105 a week from now? You see, the thing is, I answered $100 now. Yeah, okay. So, but, but your behavior using Venmo suggests maybe not. Well, we just did them in three days. <laughs> <laughs> Truer words have never been spoken, but there are planetary systems where a week would be three days. Ever think of that? Yeah. I think it's also because it's like the men, money in your Venmo is already your money, and so you hold on to that a little bit more than like money that you're going to get that isn't going to Okay, that's interesting. So um, you guys know about loss aversion? So this is, um, we're going to actually, uh, I won't be able to figure this out right now, but we'll try a different experiment later. Most people are more careful not to lose money than they are to get money. Um, let me see if I, can, if I can work this out exactly. Let's say that you are given um, $500, and you can either pay $100 um, and keep, no, I'm not going to get this right. Um, you can either pay $100 and definitely keep 400 or you can roll dice, which will give you, no, I'm not going to be able to get it right. Um, I'll have to look it up. I can't, or I'll have to figure it out when I have time to, to, to think it out. Um, there's another. There's another question that I'm going to ask you later about choices that actually have to do with with narrative. Um, but loss aversion in general is that people would rather not lose money um, that they have, and that's what you're describing, than um, then take a chance for more money than they have. So the basic idea is that if you have a certain amount of money and you could um, risk a little bit of that money to get more, um, most people won't take the risk, other things being even. But you can re-describe that as you have more money, but you definitely... Um, no, I'm still not getting the redescription right. So I'll just basically, basically, it's if you have money, you really hate to lose it. If you lose um, a bet where you could have gotten money, that is, you you enter into a sweepstakes and you could have gotten money, but you didn't, um, but you didn't pay to enter and you didn't get the money, that's okay. Um, if you already had the money and um, you, if someone gives you some money, 
there, no, there really is a good description of this that makes it vivid, and I'm just not getting there. So I'm going to look. I'm going to. I'm going to think about the the really vivid way of putting it. Anyhow, the basic idea is people would rather keep the money they have than worry about money that they might have had but didn't get. Um, one of the things that Whitehead talks about are all the stories of poker. That is all the um, endless narratives that people have of how they could have won or things that went wrong or how they lost but could have been rich if they'd only thought this through slightly differently, if they'd only worked out slightly differently what was going on with the cards and what was going on with the hands. And one thing that, that Whitehead is amazed by is the memory that the math players have of all the hands they ever played and all the stories they have about those hands. And in all, in all of those cases, it, um, the, the mistakes are going to be mistakes of loss aversion. Most people are more averse to losing money than they are to not winning money. The poker dictum goes, it's also a baseball dictum, losing hurts worse than winning feels good. Does everyone agree with that? Yeah. And that's what I think, I think that that's what you're describing about already having the money, that losing hurts worse than winning feels good. So you can set up a situation, and this is what I was fumbling with, but you can set up a situation where from a purely mathematical perspective, both choices are exactly the same. That is that you are given a certain amount of money and um, you can definitely lose $100 or you can, that's what it is, you can definitely lose $100. I won't be able to make it vivid for you, but you could definitely lose $100 or you can roll some dice and maybe win $600. And given that choice, so you have $500, you can either pay to keep um, 400 of the $500, um, pay $100 and not have to play. So you have $500, you can pay $100 and not have to play. Or you can roll some dice and if you get, or you can roll one die and if you get a six, you get $500. So you end up with 1,000. So, so you can definitely, um, pay $100 and have 400 or you can roll a die and bet that $100 and you'll either end up with, that's slightly different, you'll either end up with 200 or with 1,000, um, with 300 or with 1,000. So people who have $500 will roll the die in order to try to avoid losing the sure $100, in order not to pay the $100 not to play, but to keep 400 they will roll the die, not because they're greedy for more money, but because by rolling the die, they, are, they don't necessarily have to give up $100 of the $500 that they have. I'm still not making it quite clear, but does this make sense to people that the choice is you are given, I give you the experimenter, this is done with experiments by psychology departments that have lots of cash, I give you um, $500 and now you have a choice. And the choice is either to pay 100 of that 500 and you get to keep the other 400 or to risk 200 of that 500 in the hopes of um, getting eight or 900. And mathematically, I'm not figuring it out right now, but mathematically it would be equivalent. That is, the expected return would be the same. 
if you did it 100 times, um, the choice wouldn't make a difference. But almost everyone will roll the die in order not to have to pay $100 of the $500 that they've been given. Um, and very few people will just pay the 100 rather than risking even more money. So what we have is not risk aversion here, but loss aversion. You will take chances to avoid losses that you won't take to to try to get gains. Um, and so casinos and gambling institutions, they all know this, that people are more concerned not to lose what they already have than they are to win. So you go to a casino and you bet, and the idea is, okay, I'm going to win some money, that would be good. Um, but if you're down a little bit, then what people do is they try to win back what they've lost. And that's where casinos really make their money, is people um, who've only lost a little bit, but are trying not to go away. Uh, they're trying to break even. If they break even, they'll feel happy. Um, they're trying to break even, but they're failing. Yeah, proof. So is that where, like, the sunk cost yeah, well, it's, it's, I think it's a psychological version of the sunk cost fallacy, yeah. Um, that is that they're, they're thinking that this money is still theirs. If only they throw some more money after it, it'll all boomerang, or the hope is that it will boomerang. Um, another version of this, I think, is just, and maybe this makes the 100 versus $105 thing make more sense, or it's a way of describing it, is that people, if you win a million dollars, you're much less likely to go out and buy something stupid for, let's say, $2,000 than if you win a million and $2,000. Because there's something about the million, that's what you've won. And if you get a little bit extra, fine. You can tip the croupier in roulette or tip the person who's, who is um, dealing the poker hands or whatever. But we really like round numbers. And one reason we like round numbers is because that sets a bright line for what we don't want to go below. And setting that bright line is a version of loss aversion. That is, that bright line is as far uh, uh, beyond that bright line, we have a little bit of play. That's fine. But that bright line is where we don't want to go below that. One of the things that Whitehead points out, did you guys, um, were you interested in this, that um, the chips and the games that are played in Atlantic City and in Las Vegas, um, the chips are not the actual value, they're not played for the actual value of the cash that they're bought for. Did you guys notice that? I didn't actually know this about casino poker, which I've never played. I've done casino blackjack and roulette, um, but not poker. I'm slightly ahead, actually. I should go use that money in, in Everett. I could do it in Everett. Just the, it's just a little money. I wouldn't go beyond that. Just my stake. Um, but did you guys notice that? that? That Do you know this? Do you ever play in casinos? I'm 20, so no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what... <laughs> I know those legally have something to do with each other. <laughs> um, so did other people know that? I thought it was 18. No, it's uh, 21. It's 18. And why can't you buy a lottery ticket? You can buy, yeah, it's to actually go on a casino because it's have alcohol. They don't have alcohol-free casinos? But I've been in a casino before. In what state? Mm, Connecticut? Where's the yeah. monkey? Yeah, Connecticut. Yeah, that's, but that's on a reservation, so... The, the laws may be different. 
the reason they they have casinos there is that I by, wasn't like actually gambling. I was getting lunch, but like uh huh, with booze. <laughs> You're having booze for lunch. You're not saying okay, because you could have, because it's it's technically um, a sovereign nation. So, federal law actually changed after that. If if I remember the history correctly, but the reason that there's so many casinos on Native American land and on reservations is that they're that they have um, semi sovereignty, and so um, that's also why why they sell cigarettes there because they don't have to pay cigarette taxes. Um, you don't have to pay cigarette taxes. So and alcohol too. There are various alcohol taxes you don't have to pay. So that so yeah so Connecticut. At any rate, <laughs> I shouldn't have told you. <laughs> Your eyes lit up. Short drive. <laughs> Short drive. Um, or bus ride. They have lots of buses, right, to Mohegan Sun. They have an amazing museum there. I should just tell you, they have an amazing museum of Native American artifacts that, like, no one goes to. Um, we were there, and we were, we were there for like an hour and a half because it was such an amazing museum, and no one else came in that whole hour and a half. Tens of thousands of people are going in and out of the Mohegan Sun, and no is one is it going in. The Mohegan Sun or like yeah, it's in the same building. It's in the same building. Yes. Yeah. Isn't there a Cholula in that building? There know. wasn't then, but there might there might be now. He got an honorary degree from Brandeis. I met him. Um, so at any rate, um, the idea there is that. If you can, well, I think the idea of the chips in, in the World Series of Poker is you feel like you're playing with a lot more money than you are, but it's also not even with the amount of money that you paid. And so um, it confuses your sense of what stakes you, you are, play, you are um, playing for. And it's a little bit um, like uh, what we're going to talk about um, later on with modern monetary theory which is if you're playing for points, it's almost as though the chips are both money and points. And the points and the money are different things. Uh, that because you buy something like $1,200 worth of chips for $746, then it's a little bit hard for you to calculate whether you've dipped below 700 or not. Because you'd have to think and do the arithmetic in your head. Um, to see where you are in terms of the real cash you brought into the casino. But where you are instead is in wild territory with huge amounts, huge point value, even though the monetary value is somewhat obscured. So one interesting thing about chips is, and remember another thing that, that I think its coach tells uh, Whitehead, is that... Um, Chip, she'd eat stuff off the floor, but she would never eat a sandwich at a poker table because the chips are so filthy. So chips are even dirtier than money, and um, that's interesting also. But the chips are not, they're representations of money, but they're not transparent representations of money. That is, what a chip is worth is not the same as its face value. Whereas the whole point about money is that it's always equal to its face value if you're using it as money. And I think that that's a way of confusing people and make it, maybe making them more loss-aversive, which is, say, more anxious about trying not to dip below a certain amount. 
That is, if you have $20,000 worth of chips and you paid $59 for $20,000 worth of chips, um, then maybe you really don't want to go below that $20,000 worth of chips, even though you might only be going to $56, which wouldn't be a big deal. So there's also a reference point, in um, which is something Kahneman talks about in Thinking Fast and Slow, where if a number is um, given to you, um, that's a number that you then base... Sub Do people know about this? A number you base subsequent calculations on? Do people know about this at all? So um, tests that Kahneman did, for example... Do people know about this book, Thinking Fast and Slow? So you should know about it. Um, it's a fantastically wonderful book. And it's the result of a lifetime of work by this behavioral economist named um, Daniel Kahneman um, and his partner until he died. That is his, not, not his um, erotic partner, but his intellectual partner, Amos Tversky. And the work that they did in a new invented field that they invented, which they named prospect theory because they wanted a meaningless name. And what they, the stuff they figured out about how people can take shortcuts in their thinking and how they can be manipulated is amazing. So one thing that they did, for example, is, you know, there's a game show called The Price is Right. Did we talk about that at all? Yeah, we did where you're supposed to try and get as close as you can to the price of something without going over it. And if you go over it, you lose. So whoever is closest but underneath it will win. And so they played <coughs> versions of The Price is Right where they would spin uh, um, like in um, um, the Pat Sajak show, um, Van White Pat Sajak, where you try to guess phrases. Uh. Wheel of Fortune. Wheel of Fortune, yeah. They would spin a Wheel of Fortune just to see who went first. But the wheel was actually um, rigged. So basically it's whoever got the highest number got to, got to play first in, the pri in a Price is Right game. And it was rigged, so there were lots of numbers between <coughs> 10 and 1,000. But it was rigged so it would only stop on 1,000 or only stop on 90, something like that. So something about 10 times as much as the other thing. And the contestants didn't know it was rigged. And um, whenever it stopped at, tenth, at 1,000, the amounts that they would estimate that things cost were much higher than when the wheel stopped at 90. And this, this number on the wheel had nothing to do with the washing machine or the car whose price they were trying to estimate. But what happens is that you get an anchor, this is the name that they gave it, and if a large number is subliminally put into your mind, that is they see the thousand, they think it's just determining who'll go first, but if the number thousand is the one that wins and that's where you go first, people are now going to be spendthrift in other quantities that they mention. So if it comes to a thousand, then you will bet that the washer dryer is um, close to a thousand dollars, maybe eight hundred dollars. And if it lands on ninety, people are starting to guess that the washer dryer is going to be about three hundred seventy-five, three hundred eighty dollars. So one reason that you have large sales in places like 
Persian rug stores, which where the rugs are always on sale, is that they give you a large number and then they're offering you the rug for a whole lot less than the first large number that you see. And you've seen this very large number and then this much smaller number looks like a fantastic deal. Whereas if they had just given you the smaller number, then you wouldn't know whether it was a good deal or not. And often what they'll do is they'll have something for sale, not on sale, just for sale, but not on sale, for a huge amount of money, $100,000 rug. And so you go in and the number $100,000 is in your mind. And then they're offering you a rug for a mere $798. And because you're comparing it to this other quantity that's on your mind, that $798 seems like a really good deal. Whereas if they just had an ad, rug, $798, you'd say, that's a lot of money for a rug. Um, so what happens is you have reference points, anchor points in your mind. And they also have to do with, so I think that the high number chips have to do with loss aversion. That if the, even if the money is fake, losing um, $2,000, which is only really worth $40, but losing $2,000 in chips is going to feel a lot worse than losing $40 in cash. And I think, although Whitehead doesn't say this, but I think that that's why they do it. But there's something really interesting about money representing money there, that you have money which represents money but in a different um, currency. And this also happens if you think about you know, what, what a song costs on iTunes in Europe is, um, um, is like one euro 25 versus what it costs in the US, which is $1.25. Um, same amount of money. But it's not. A euro 25 is about US dollar 50. Uh, why does it cost more in Europe? Because it's the, it's the physiognomy of the number that people are paying attention to and not the actual value of that number. Um, so people spend more, Americans famously spend more in England than they do in Europe because the pound until Friday um, is still higher than, than the euro in a one-to-one -one exchange rate with the dollar. And so if you go to England and something costs 1995, you may take the time to think to yourself, well, that's really about $30. Um, and if you go to Europe and it's 1995, you may take the time to think to yourself, that's really about $26. Um, but on the whole, you'll just fixate on 1995. Yeah. So does it work in reverse? So if you go to a place with like large amounts of inflation, you look at something that's like, thousand pesos? Are you like, whoa? Sometimes, yeah. And that's why, for example, in places with huge inflation, like Zimbabwe um, 10 or 15 years ago, um, and also I think in Argentina, they issued new bills which were just like the old bills except like with yeah. seven zeros yeah. taken away. Because, yeah, and there was a, there was a great um, Saturday Night Live sketch when I was a kid where um, some president might have been Bush, was defending inflation. And he was saying, well, I don't know about you, but I love the idea of being able to afford a $10,000 suit. Inflation is good because now you can have things that cost a whole lot of money. And, um, and that's great. You know, the Constitution, the US Constitution, allows for lawsuits for any, um, any action which is over $20 in value. So that seems like, oh, that's cool. I can sue someone 
for cheating me out of $20. Um, $20 back then is more like $1,000 now. Um, so if you, were, if you were updating the Constitution in real money, um, it would not be that you could sue someone for $20. Um, but you could then. So what, what should originalists think about the Constitution? Is $20 $20? Or do you have to take into account inflation between then and now? Um, but these are all questions about the money as a token or as a store of value and um, money as something that actually has value in itself. The idea of checks, which as I say, I know you guys don't use, but the idea of checks is if, do you guys know what kiting checks is? Um, yeah, it's because people are using, do you know, Jimmy? What it means to kite a check? What do you mean mm -hmm. by kiting a check? I mean, do you mean by sort of like bouncing checks and stuff like that? Well, no, so if you kite a check, it shouldn't be bouncing. So the basic idea of kiting a check, back in the day before cash machines, lots of undergraduates did this, is the campus store would have a check cashing service. And what you would do is you would, if you needed $20, you write a check for $20.50. They would charge you 50 cents to cash the check. And you'd then get the $20 in cash. And you would have nothing in your bank account to cover that check. But what you would do is the, it would take them two days before the check got to the bank. So the next day, you'd cash another check for $20.50. And you'd take the cash and run to your bank and deposit it. And then when the first check came in, the bank would pay it off because you'd have $20.50 in the bank to pay it off. And um, then you would write a third check. And when the second check came in, you would pay off the second check with the $20 from the third check and so on. So if you timed it right, you could always be one step ahead of the bank. And you'd get this $20. A second $20 the next day, you'd have the first $20, which you'd spend on, on whatever silly thing you spent it on. But in the meantime, you'd be depositing $20 every day from a check that you cashed to pay off the check that you cashed the previous day. Does this make sense to people? Don't try it at home. Um, because what happens is at some point, they either get there too fast or they register your deposit too, slow, deposit too slowly. And then you, and then suddenly you're not covering the check, and they're charging you bounce check fees, and it's a disaster. But kiting checks means a kind of one-person Ponzi scheme, where what you are doing is paying yourself off each day with the check that you are um, have cashed the previous day, and. Um, Checks will do that in general. If you have securities, if you have checks, if I write you a check, you can endorse it to someone else, and they can then endorse it to someone else, and or you can endorse it to bearer. And all that that means, do people know about endorsing checks? Is this, I know this is old, old school. Before I had, like, a bank account, mm -hmm. I had to, like, endorse checks that I got from, like, my grandfather to my father. Right. And he would cash it. But how many times can you reasonably endorse a check? Well, because there's like this much space that you go below. You can just sign your name. You don't have to say who you're paying it to. Oh. So endorsing a check, if you sign your name, that's all you need. So then they can just pass it around. Yeah. So what that means is that in a way you're creating money. 
because, because if everyone thinks the check is good, then there's no reason for anyone to, pa- to, to cash it. They can just, if, if you give me $20 because you owe me $20, and then I owe Joseph $20, so I give the check that you gave to me to him, and he owes $20 to um, Noah, and Noah owes $20 to Nicole, this check can just go round and round and round without ever having to be turned in for actual cash. So suddenly there's 20 more, do- 20 more dollars in circulation because the check is being treated as the equivalent of a $20 bill. So it's a kind of legal counterfeiting because you have this check which says pay, um, pay the bearer $20. That's essentially what the endorsement says. And so now you have a $20 bill that's going around and um, there's no actual reason for anyone to um, bring the check to a bank, except, of course, the check gets more and more ratty, so eventually you would bring it to a bank. But, but if the check were made of something indestructible, if it, would, if it were made of Tyvex, then you guys know what Tyvex is? It's what um, express mail flexible envelopes are made of, kind of feels like raincoats. No? Yes? It's known as Tyvex. You'll sometimes see Tyvex house wrap when houses are being built. Um, yeah, got it. Yeah, it's, a, it's the same fabric. It's an indestructible fabric, essentially. Uh, in, kind of indestructible combination of paper and, and I think, fiberglass or something. Um, and it's waterproof. So if you had a Tyvex check, someone should do that. You call it tie check. If you had a Tyvex check, then it's like you're creating money. And... Um, but still it counts because supposedly it represents something, even though the thing it represents you're never demanding. So poker chips are also like creating money. If you give someone a gift of a poker chip, and if they then if they have lots of gamblers for friends and they they buy stuff from their friends by paying with chips instead of by paying with um, cash. Uh, the state of California, um, when it doesn't have a balanced budget, I don't think this is still true, but there was a while when, no, when it didn't have a budget. Um, Unlike Trump, they actually paid their workers in chits. Do people know this? So the state of California didn't have a budget. They uh, they weren't allowed to um, spend any money because by law because they didn't have a budget. And they had all these workers. They don't do this anymore, actually. People I know who work for the state of California just had to give up money. They were really pissed. But it used to be that they would, that the state of California would give you a chit, which said this is worth such and such amount of money when the state of California is able to um, spend money again. And all the businesses, all the big businesses in California would accept the chits as money. So the state of California wasn't allowed to pay anyone money, but they were giving them documents that said this will be worth money when we have a budget. And um, Stop and Shop and um, Mobile and all every other business would accept chits instead of money, knowing that eventually the state of California would have a budget and they could turn in those chits for money. But say they never did. Say those chits never were turned in for money. Um, I mean, say the state of California never did have a budget. Um, would those chits lose value? And what um, Grabner would say is no, they wouldn't if the state of California accepted chits as payment for taxes. 
That is, you they're still collecting taxes because taxes, um, and they're paying people in chits because they don't have any money. But if you can then pay your taxes with chits that the state of California says that it'll stand behind, then the chits can turn into money, and um, it doesn't really matter. Okay, back to MacGuffins. <laughs> because MacGuffins are partly about loss aversion, and they are both... So, so just, just to summarize a little bit some of the stuff that we've been talking about that actually does all go together, um, we've been talking a little bit centrifugally, um, but uh, we can be centripetal about it now, is we've been talking about money, narrative, um, desire, hope and fear about narrative, and loss aversion versus risk aversion. And all of this has to do also with, with where storytelling and gambling overlap. And the overlap of storytelling and gambling is that in a sense, in a story, you're placing a bet about how things are going to happen. Um, storytelling is a little, or, or story consuming, reading a story, watching a movie, listening to a story, is that you're hoping certain things are going to happen, and you are also worried that certain things are going to happen. And the, the puzzle that we were looking at on Monday is where's the worry coming from? Why would you read a story when you could just not read it and then you don't have to worry about whether Hansel and Gretel will be cooked by the witch? Um, why do you read the story to begin with? So one obvious answer is they come out ahead at the end, but how do you know that they're going to come out ahead? And what about stories where things end up... Or why not, what about stories where before things come out ahead, you do that bungee jumping thing that we were describing as being like going to the Grand Canyon, as danger, which then doesn't turn into disaster. But there's a risk of danger that doesn't turn into disaster. So risk of danger is risk of loss. The disaster doesn't happen, so the loss averted. You could say that stories that end happily, the two-word summary for any story that ends happily is loss averted. So that loss aversion, that's something that we see every day in, in human behavior. And, you know, it's why you shouldn't risk what you have, even if the odds are good, that you'll double your money even if it's a 50-50 chance, but the odds are good that you'll triple your money, um, people will think twice about doing such a thing. So there's a risk in a story, but the loss is averted, and so you feel that you come out ahead. So there's also this idea of the MacGuffin. And the MacGuffin, not actually a device for hunting lions in Scotland. What a MacGuffin is for Hitchcock is the thing that the protagonists or the main characters or the people whose story we're following, the thing that they're after. And as you'll see in the Maltese Falcon, the thing that everyone is after in the Maltese Falcon is the Maltese Falcon. And 
the in the book version of the Maltese Falcon, the, unfortunately, the studio didn't have the guts to do this because the director was a new director. He, his first movie he was directing, and they wanted to make sure it was exciting, so they explained at the very start what the Maltese Falcon was. In the book, you don't know what the Maltese Falcon is. You just know everyone wants it. They want this thing, the Maltese Falcon. Um, Sam Spade, you'll see this when you read it, Sam Spade calls it the dingus. Um, because he doesn't even he, he can't even keep it in mind what exactly it's supposed to be. It's the thing. It's the dingus. Um, they all want it. People are killing each other for it. The, the novel begins. This is not a spoiler. With a murder on behalf of trying to get the Maltese Falcon. And so, one thing that we're doing when we're reading the book, and Hitchcock does this even more than. Dashiell Hammett does it. But one thing that we're doing when we're reading the book is we want to know not only who's going to get the Falcon, but why is the Falcon worth getting? So the MacGuffin for Hitchcock, the MacGuffin in a story which handles MacGuffins right, the MacGuffin, we could say there's a MacGuffin in the Partner's Tale. And the MacGuffin in the Partner's Tale is death. That is, there's money under a tree, but there's also death. And we, they are directed to find death, and instead they find money. So where has death gone all this time? There's something that they're looking for. There's a problem that they want to solve, which is how do you find death? And it turns out that death is that money under the tree in the partner's tale. But more generally, in Hitchcock, you will see... How many people know the movie Notorious? Sort of? So in Notorious, Notorious is funny for the following reason, which is that it's, um, it came out in... I think it's funny for lots of reasons, but it came out in 19... It was finished at the end of 1945, and it's right after the end of the Second World War. And there are some Nazis who have escaped to Argentina... And they are um, um, planning their comeback. And their comeback is taking the form as that they have a secret weapon that they're working on. And the secret weapon that they're working on um, requires them to mine uranium. And Hitchcock made this movie before Trinity. So Trinity was the first explosion of an atomic bomb, the test explosion, before the bomb was used against Japan in August of 1945. Hitchcock had made this movie in March and April of 1945. And um, the OSS and the FBI, when they heard about this movie, questioned him and they said, what do you know about uranium? And he said, uranium... It's just some completely uninteresting element way up there in the periodic table, which is all Hitchcock knew about it, was that he just kind of picked an element at random up in the periodic table that no one had ever heard of and um, that had nothing to do with what people were doing in everyday life. And he decided this would be a thing that would have a fancy name, like remember what they mine in Pandora, on Pandora in Avatar? Unobtainium. Unobtainium, yes. Um, the thing that you can't obtain. So uranium is the same thing. So 
Um, everyone was really looking for something in Notorious. It's hidden in wine bottles or champagne bottles in the ba- in wine bottles in the basement of the head Nazi's house, and everyone is looking for it. And it, and finally, Cary Grant finds it, and he doesn't know what it is. And it turns out to be uranium, and people are all excited about this. But we don't know why uranium is important. So Hitchcock, out of sheer luck, picked the one element that the people watching the movie immediately got why it was important. But he picked something that no one would know why it was important. And we're watching the movie and we want to know not only will Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman get together at the end, will Ingrid Bergman survive, will Claude Rains manage to take his revenge on her, Will Claude Rains' mother manage to take her revenge on her? All of these are questions about plot. But parallel to that, a second question is running. And the parallel second question is, why is this so important? Why do they care so much about this? I think it's MI3 or MI4 that they're all looking for the rabbit's foot. Do you remember that? You guys don't watch the MI movies? Mission Impossible? Yeah. No? I did. I don't remember that. Tom Cruise, though. Anyhow. Yeah, I know. That's what everyone thinks when they look at Tom Cruise. It's terrible. Um, It's his fault. Um, So there's uh, the Impossible Missions team is directed to get the rabbit's foot. And what is it? Says Tom Cruise. And you're not, you you, you don't need to know it. You simply need to know where it is. So Throughout the entire movie, they're trying to get the rabbit's foot. What is the rabbit's foot? It might be, as they speculate in the course of the movie, it might be something of extraordinary value, or it might be fissile material, or it might be biological, some biological um, organism that would that would um, be used for biological warfare, or it might be um, the the um, cipher to some quantum code, so that so that um, U.S. intelligence could be read, but it's called the rabbit's foot. And throughout the entire movie, the Impossible Missions team is going for the rabbit's foot. And throughout the entire movie, we're wondering, what is the rabbit's foot? So it's not only will they get it, that's one question that whose answer we want to know, but the other question is, what is it? So the MacGuffin keeps you interested not only as an object of desire, but also as an unknown object. And it's not being known means that we have a second reason to want them to get it. So there's always a point in a movie, for example, where people could walk away, stop trying to get the MacGuffin, let's just get out of here and go to an island and live happily forever after. And we may think that's a good idea. Then the romp couple will get together and we'll be happy. But the problem with it is we'll never know what they were after, what it was that was driving this whole story. So the MacGuffin is a second appeal to knowledge. There's something really interesting about Ainsley calling money a MacGuffin, because with money we do know what it is. It's money. One million dollars, as Dr. Evil says. But... It's not quite money in gambling. And that's the really crucial thing to understand about gambling. So tomorrow, we'll talk about Dostoevsky and the Guffins.
Okay. See you then. I wanted to start class, but Lynn Fay never came.